Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. It is Thanksgiving week, dear listener, and I hope that our episode last week on Terrar didn't put you all off your meals, um, because, yeah, a week of not being able to eat might might be a reasonable follow-on from that episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, but this week, Caroline, something more appetizing? Oh, no. Uh-oh. Oh, no. <laughs> no, this one's going to be pretty intense. Um, so, listeners, if you're not into listening about gruesome crimes or whatever this one's pretty tragic pretty intense um but of course i'm going to start with a little backstory because that's what i uh, love to do sean so this crime um it actually sort of ties in to my interest in true crime as a whole i got back into the whole true crime thing around the time that I graduated college in 2012, which is when things started to get more popular, like investigation discovery. And I mean, it was right before Serial, but you know, you're getting a lot more true crime content out there. Now, I had been very into true crime as a kid, weirdly. I loved watching real forensics shows in elementary school and middle school. Sure, did these give you fraudulent memories of being the murderers? <laughs> Uh, no, no, that was just John Wilkes Booth for me. Um, I, it did give me an interest in being a forensic scientist, but I then realized that I was bad at all of the math and science that would require. Um, but it, you know, it, it didn't stop my interest. And at the end of college, when I was wrapping up my senior year, uh, something happened that sort of threw me back into it. Gilgo Beach. Yes. So at the time uh, of my senior year in college, bodies were being found just minutes away from my school near Jones Beach in Long Island. And there's a series of beaches, one of those being Gilgo Beach. And these bodies would soon be attributed to the Long Island serial killer, who remains unidentified now 10 years later. Isn't it a pretty popular thought, though, that it's probably lots of people's victims, possibly mafia? Um, maybe not lots, but yes, it, it's a popular thought that it's multiple killers dumping grounds because it's a very quiet, dark place, especially in the winter. And we would drive by the area late at night and we'd see the crime scene tape still up from the ongoing investigation and feel eerier than we ever did in Long Island's famous haunted places. You know, I, I, I was more creeped out driving through that area than I was driving by the Amityville Horror House, for example. Yeah, sure, because these murders happened. Well, I mean, there were murders at Amityville, but yes, um, we knew this was real, and whoever had done these awful crimes was still out there, waiting. So I think that experience pushed me back into the true crime sphere, and clearly I never left. But I'm, I'm prefacing with this backstory because today I'm taking us down a very dark road, into one of the first crimes I became very interested in that summer after graduation, and one that hasn't left my mind since. Um, and I learned of this, if, if you're doing the one I'm thinking of, Carrie, I learned of this crime with you uh, mm -hmm. on a ghost tour in New Orleans. Well, I had already known about it, but yes. Um, 
And unlike Jack the Ripper or the Manson murders, this is a crime that uh, many people don't know about. And today I'm going to be telling the story of Zachary Bowen and Addie Hall and how their relationship ended in terrible horror and tragedy. Uh, Much more recent than either the Manson murders or the Ripper murders, too. Yes. So I first heard of the story that summer um, during a, I was watching TV and there was a short-lived TV show on called Final Witness. And it was really well-made for a true crime show. This is the one with Harrison Ford with the barn raising. That's just Witness. (laughs) I see. Uh, Final Witness only lasted for a season, which I assume was because of the conceit of the show. Well, I mean, they said it was final right in the title, so... (laughs) Well, each episode was narrated by the victim, like beyond the grave. And I thought it wasn't, you know, disrespectfully done or anything. It was kind of more of an artistic choice, but I could understand why people would be offended. And so there were only a few episodes ever made. But one was about Zach and Addie's case, which I had never heard of before, but it captured my attention so deeply, I immediately began researching it myself. Furious love, if you will. Graveyard love, which is what we're calling this uh, this episode today. Yeah, this is a story very intertwined with New Orleans and Hurricane Katrina, and one that is obviously still very fresh in the hearts of locals and of family members. So I'm going to be covering this as respectfully as possible because obviously that's always important to us. And my main source for this episode will be the definitive book so far about the case, "Shake the Devil Off" by Ethan Brown. And I'll also reference some television documentary episodes on the case. Again, be forewarned, this is a gruesome crime and terribly sad, and it's an event that has had far-reaching consequences in NOLA since. Now for this one, I'm going to begin kind of at the end. October 17th, 2006. Oh, that would be about 14 years to the day before we got married. Mm-hmm, that is our wedding anniversary, yes. A man's body is found on the roof of the parking garage of the Omni Royal Orleans Hotel in New Orleans, Louisiana. A hotel guest had seen the man fall from the area of the La Riviera rooftop pool bar at the Omni and frantically called down to the front desk, who then called 911. It was immediately designated a suicide, and the responding police weren't too surprised. Suicides were common in New Orleans during this post-Katrina time. But it did seem a little strange that the victim had done so at such a bougie hotel. Well, and rooftop bars are just fun. That'll lift (laughs) anybody's spirits. True. They didn't often have jumpers to deal with. The man had fallen five stories uh, from the rooftop bar area to the roof of the parking garage. But despite blood pouring from his mouth and head and some twisted limbs, it wasn't as brutal a scene as the police were usually used to when they had to deal with jumpers. In the man's front pocket, a Ziploc bag was found containing army dog tags bearing the name Zachary Bowen and a folded sheet of paper labeled for police only on the outside. The plot thickens. Mm -hmm. So obviously they're presuming this is a suicide note. The coroner's office investigator read it out loud. Why would you address your suicide note to the police, though? Well, because of what it says. This is not accidental. I had to take my own life to pay for the one I took. If you send a patrol to 226, I'm sorry, I think it's 826 North Rampart, you will find the dismembered corpse of my girlfriend Addie in the oven. 
on the stove and in the fridge, along with full documentation on the both of us and a full signed confession from myself. The keys in my right front pocket are for the gates. Call Leo, call Leo Watermeyer to let you in. Zach Bowen. So the detectives were pretty shocked by this. Um, they rushed to the address written and got a hold of Leo Watermeyer, the landlord, who let them into the one-bedroom apartment about a block down the street from where he himself lived. At least they had an idea of what they were going to see. This would be quite a shock if you didn't, if you weren't forewarned at all. Yeah, I, I guess there is that. The apartment was on the second floor of a building whose ground level was occupied by the Voodoo Spiritual Temple. When they made it inside the apartment, even the note that Zach had written could not have prepared them from what they found. So first off, they notice it's freezing in the place. Zach had left the window unit air conditioner blasting at 60 degrees. The place was uh, messy. Did he think that was going to help with the smell, do you think? Yes. And I think it did for a while. Uh, there were cigarettes and beer cans scattered across the floor. Messages were spray-painted across the walls, reading things like, Please call my wife. I love her. I'm a total failure. And most ominously, look in the oven. One message spray-painted on the ceiling above the bed simply read, Please help me stop the pain. So they dealt with the oven message first, following a silver arrow spray-painted pointing downward towards the oven door. When the door was opened, the horror truly began. Inside were small human legs stuffed into a tinfoil turkey pan. Sorry to bring in the turkey. Uh, I don't want to put you off your Thanksgiving feast, friends. Yeah, we had some listeners. Again, thankful that Tarar wasn't a Thanksgiving this week isn't, episode. This isn't going to be better. You're bringing in a turkey-specific uh, uh, implements here. Well, the legs were charred black from being cooked. Detectives went to the stovetop, which bore some large lidded cooking pots. And I'm sure at that point they knew what they would find, but they still had to open them, even though... On documentaries, they said, like, I didn't really want to do this, but I, you know, it's their job. Inside one was a woman's head, and inside the other pot was hands and feet. Were they cooked? Like, were the burners yes. on? Oh. I don't know if the burners were actively on, but they had been cooked, burnt. The last step was to... Like, so I'm sorry. And I, don't, I, I know you don't want to get more into this. Were they boiled? I think... The stovetop items were boiled, yes. The skin was starting to separate from the skull. Okay. Yeah, that sounds like it's been sitting in sitting in some water. Well, you need at least 12 to 18 hours to get a good broth going. <sighs> Sorry. No. Yeah. The last step was to open the fridge, which inside held a legless and armless torso in a blood-stained black garbage bag. The lead detective told author Ethan Brown, quote, none of the cops who were on the scene had ever seen anything that this disturbing. In fact, we all had to take breaks outside the apartment that night. What we were seeing was inconceivable. It was like we were living inside a movie. It was just that eerie. The body would soon be identified as being that of Addie Hall. So how could something so horrifying happen? What would drive any person to do something so unspeakable to someone they ostensibly loved? 
Well, for that, we'll have to go back to the beginning and we'll first dive into the life of Zachary Bowen. So Zach was born in California to parents that divorced when he was still young. After a turbulent youth, being a bit of an outsider in school, he dropped out during the second half of his high school senior year and moved to Washington to live with his father, Jack. They set off on a cross-country road trip at the beginning of 1996, charting a path through some of the biggest party cities in America like Savannah, Georgia, and Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Their final stop would be in New Orleans. The king of party cities, admittedly. Mm -hmm. And Jack was more of a bro than a dad, so he figured they could party together and spend some quality time during this trip. And in New Orleans, Jack planned on setting down roots for a few months to really take advantage of his time with Zach. Zach, however, was pretty grown up now. He was nearly six foot ten inches tall and quite handsome. Was he... What did he do for work? He was a professional wrestler or a... Well, right now he's 17, 18 years old, so he's not really working. A sign put upper? I mean, you know, you got to put that height to use. (laughs) Well, he began to attract attention from girls and even gay men as well, especially in the French Quarter bars he frequented. He usually didn't get carded because he was so tall. In the summer of 1996, Zach began a job... There you go, Sean, serving go cups of cocktails from a bar window. So those, if you don't know, um, listeners, it's legal to just drink in the streets of New Orleans and people take that pretty seriously. (laughs) (laughs) They take it. Yes, they take it very seriously. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So what this window was like seven feet off the ground. They were like, you're the only one who can do this. (laughs) No, it was just it was basically a to go window just serving cocktails. Yeah, probably 36-ounce beers. And it was here that 17- or 18-year-old Zach Bowen met 28-year-old Lana Shupak. Lana was from Texas and worked as an erotic dancer, but right now she was on a girl's vacation. They dated during her time in New Orleans, and once she made it back to Dallas, Zach began to call, begging her to return. She did to visit a few weeks later, and they dated throughout the fall until... Lana found out that he was only 17, 18 years old, which came as a shock to her because he was bartending, which usually required a minimum age of 21. So she had assumed he was at least that old. She attempted to break things off, but found out she was unexpectedly pregnant with Zach's child in early 1997. Oh, no. Yeah. She told him about the pregnancy in early March, and Zach, still being a teenager, was understandably conflicted. In a letter he wrote his mother that month, he stated, quote, This is the letter informing you of my unexpected venture into fatherhood. I've made quite a few errors in my past, and this is one of the biggest I've had to deal with. But this is what I get for being young and stupid. After hours of pleading defenses such as, I'm too young, I don't want to father this child, and why not wait for someone who shares the same feelings as you, she was still unmoved and much to my dismay. She is a 28-year-old ex-stripper as of now who I regret ever meeting. I'm going to stay in New Orleans until the child is born and see it through part of its infancy, but in no way will I be its daddy. So, meaning he's not going to pay for it either? Well... He really wanted her to get an, an abortion. Well, she wanted to keep the baby. His, from his letter to his mom. And she she had basically said to him, listen, you can 
be with me for this and be a part of the baby's life or not. But like, you know, let's not do this whole like half-assed thing. I mean, I don't know why he chose to stick it through, um, but he did. Lana and Zach's son, Jackson, was born in July of 1997. Zach met his son a few weeks after the birth because, you know, things were still weird. And as soon as he did, he was all in on fatherhood. It was kind of one of those magic moments where you hold the baby for the first time and you're like, I can, I can do this. I'm going to be a dad. Isn't she lovely? He officially began a relationship with Lana soon after and got a bartending job at the Pontchartrain Hotel that provided health benefits for the family. So he's, you know, trying to grow up. Is the Pontchartrain where we sat around that rotating bar? Because I think it might be. I don't know. Maybe. Could be. He proposed to Lana and they married in October 1998 with Lana being pregnant with their second child. Their daughter, Lily, was born in June of 1998, and Zach's older brother, Jed, suggested he enlist in the army to make something more of his life. Uh, There were no children at the end of this story, and I am horrified. The children are fine. Well, I mean, physically, they're fine. Um, After earning his high school degree from a GED program in March 2000, he soon headed to the army recruiting station on Dauphine Street to sign up. Now, the year 2000 wasn't a good year to enlist in the army. Be- you, you mean because of 2001? Yeah. And in 2000, it might have seemed a pretty safe job with both the Cold War and Gulf War being passed, but it was about to get more serious. Always another war, Carrie. Mm-hmm. So after enlisting and doing boot camp and everything, Zach is sent to Kosovo to assist with peacekeeping efforts in the area. And this forced Zach to experience his first horrors of war, including uncovering mass graves and experiencing near brushes with death. One day, he gave a few pieces of candy to a young Albanian girl as a small act of kindness, only to find out the next day that she had been killed by the Serbs because she had interacted with an American, him. After this incident, Zach became much more withdrawn during this tour. Eventually, he returned to his base in Germany, and Lana, Jackson, and Lily moved out to join him in family housing that August. Lana found the transition especially hard, compounded by Zach's fellow soldiers knowing about her stripper past and her not fitting in with the other army wives. But she eventually came up with her own routine with the kids and was finally beginning to settle in by the time September 2001 rolled around. And of course, this is where things get more serious. So on September 11th, we all know... Um, I just want to interject here to say the Kosovo conflict was quite serious. Oh, yes, yes. But that always had kind of a time limit on it for, you know, military intervention. But then the United States was hit with a terrorist attack and everything changed for everyone, of course, and especially for the Bowens. What terrorist attack was that? 9-11. Oh, I said I would never forget. I'm sorry. (sighs) By the fall of the next year, there was no doubt that Zach would soon be shipped to Iraq. And he was in early 2003 with an initial stop in Kuwait. Almost immediately, the platoon encountered gunfire, bombs, and a blurring of the line between soldier and civilian that no one had really prepared them for. The big wars were fought between two sides wearing uniforms and following vague rules, but there were no uniforms in Baghdad, no rules. 
Baghdad itself fell to coalition forces in April and the Hussein regime was toppled. But the company now had a new mission, set up police stations and train the Iraqi police force in the major cities, including in Baghdad and around the prison area of Abu Ghraib. Um, And all of the Iraqi inmates at the Abu Ghraib prison were released by Hussein, um, who emptied all of the prisons of everyone, including murderers. Um, So they were just murderers wandering the streets and criminals and all that stuff. So it's bad time. Bad time to be a to be creating a police force. Yeah. <laughs> the soldiers of the 527th lived in a palace formerly owned by one of Saddam Hussein's vice presidents, situated on the outskirts of Baghdad. When the soldiers were bored, Zach would play guitar for them on the back patio. And the group was initially optimistic. But as Iraq's oppressive summer set in, reality did as well. One of Zach's brothers in arms told Ethan Brown, quote, when you stood right in front of the Iraqis, they loved you. But when they, when you turned around, it was another story. Meanwhile, Lana was dealing with a life-threatening case of hepatitis C, and after a short visit back to be with her, Zach's superiors began to refuse him leave, even as doctors reported to them that Zach's wife could be dying. So it's a very stressful time. Um, uh, yeah, I would. Yeah. I would think so. Insurgent attacks steeply increased, with multiple platoon soldiers being sent home with critical injuries from IEDs. And in October, Zach's close platoon friend Rachel Bosveld was killed in a mortar attack. One of the first female military police officers to die in combat in Iraq, and the first at all to die from the 527th. Zach's father-in-law, Carl Shupak, would later say, Losing the girl from his company, that was very painful for Zach. That was a turning point. So all of this is happening on top of his fears that his wife would die while he was still deployed. And there was also another loss around that time. Zach had become friendly with a young Iraqi boy whose family owned a small shop across the street from one of the police stations in Baghdad. And the boy would bring Zach cans of Coke and bags of ice from the store. And in return, Zach taught him English. Staff Sergeant Larry Berriman reflected that Zach had forged such a strong relationship with the child because he felt like it was a good deed that could possibly make him overcome his increasing opposition to the war and his own part in it. But tragically, in September, the shop was blown up by insurgents possibly due to their friendliness with the Americans, and the little boy and his entire family were killed. Whether or not that was the reason, certainly Zach's going to see it that way. Yeah. But, I mean, it's very likely that girl was killed because she was talking to him, and people were killed for less at this point. So after this loss, the death of Rachel, and Lana's health problems, Zach was finally done. He fully withdrew into himself. The 527th arrived back in Germany that November, although one of Zach's platoon buddies admitted, Iraq was in the exact same place when we arrived, if not worse. I felt like it was all going to hell in a handbasket. And Zach was possibly even more disillusioned than this and came back a different person than the one who had left. Before his involvement in the war, he had been talkative, gregarious, charismatic, but now he was quiet, withdrawn, and brooding. He began to obsess on his feelings that the war was an unjust one, 
and that all of their personal losses had been in vain. And uh, he was also pissed that the military hadn't even let him go back home when everyone thought his wife was on her deathbed. He felt betrayed. And he was experiencing frequent severe headaches, which is an early indicator of the onset of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. He was also short of breath. He wheezed and coughed at night, developed a rash and terrible shoulder and back pain. In the spring of 2004, Zach began to fail his army physical fitness tests, which would periodically check on the soldier's physical performance. By the fall, he had failed many of the tests and began to be removed by the military under uh, Chapter 13, which is headed Unsatisfactory Performance. So I guess some sort of code. He was recommended for an honorable discharge from the army by his company commander, which is what usually goes through in these cases, but not for Zach. A different colonel recommended Zach receive a general under honorable honorable conditions discharge. And it doesn't sound that different, but it actually meant a profound difference in the benefits he would now be eligible for. Many soldiers in Zach's case um, who received general under honorable conditions discharges would lose benefits like home loan guarantees, life insurance, and disability and, and, and disability and education benefits. For Zach not to receive an honorable discharge was incredibly out of the ordinary. He had served honorably in Kosovo and Iraq, had caused no disciplinary problems, and earned numerous medals, badges, and commendations. The failed physical tests were the only taint on his record. So, did this get? Do we know about this guy, the the colonel who made this call? Did he just not like him, or? Uh, we I don't think we do know. Um, just some bureaucracy bullshit, probably. But unfortunately, really fucked this guy over. So Zach, likely out of shame, attempted to lie to Lana about the exact circumstances of his discharge, sparking a huge argument between them. And Lana told Zach, we're done. So I guess that was her final straw. She flew back to New Orleans and left the children with Zach in Germany because they were in a good Department of Defense school. She began to date an old friend of hers, and her and Zach separated, though did not divorce. Zach and the children moved back to New Orleans in December 2004, and he lived with Lana and the family until he was able to get on his feet, and he began tending bar at Hogg's Bar in the French Quarter. As Ethan Brown noted, quote, everything that could have gone wrong went wrong during Zach's transition from combat soldier to civilian. The tragic result, Zach, a combat soldier with documented post-deployment mental health symptoms, was mercilessly kicked to the curb by the military. And um, this would be a dark sign of what was to come. So after the break, we'll get into the life of Adrian Addy Hall and the events that brought her into Zach Bowen's life and each other to a tragic end. Yeah, she hasn't come into this story. So she only comes into his life like at this point mm-hmm. and within the next year, year and a half. It's going to get dark. Support for Ain't It Scary is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Their products are precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. 
and the performance package 4.0 has arrived. We got one of these in the mail uh, just the other day, Caroline. And oh man, is it a game changer. Uh, Inside this package, you will find, first of all, inside the lid, it says, your balls will thank you, which I appreciate. Uh, And then you'll find the lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, weed whacker, ear and nose hair trimmer, crop preserver, ball deodorant, crop reviver, ball toner, performance boxer briefs, and a travel bag to hold your goodies. And I mean all that stuff I just said, not your testicles, which are (laughs) also referred to as goodies a lot in the Manscaped uh, literature. Mm-hmm. First off, the Lawnmower 4.0. This trimmer is the future of grooming and, dare I say, the greatest ball trimmer ever. Their fourth generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin safe technology. The Lawnmower 4.0 is waterproof and also has a 4000K LED spotlight for when you need a more precise shave. It really is just a. Um, you know, they're, re- they're ready to go on stage. They're ready for Hollywood, these guys. They got a spotlight right on them. Hey, boys. Like they have their own vaudeville act. Absolutely. I'm the left. He's the right. Nice. It's time to take care of yourself. So go to manscaped.com and get 20% off and free shipping with code SCARYSQUAD. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code SCARYSQUAD. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Welcome back. Uh, we are, well, Caroline is taking us through the tragic story mm. of Zach Bowen and Addie Hall. Um, the story, obviously, well, we heard the end of it at the beginning, so it's going to end tragically for both of them. Um, but we were just going to be introduced to uh, poor Adrian Hall here, Carrie. Yes, and we know less about her life, but what we do know... Um, that Addie was raised in Durham, North Carolina by a Vietnam vet father and homemaker mother. She dropped out of high school and traveled around the country, living life on the road and crashing on friends' couches. And she made it back to Durham in the late 90s, but eventually moved to New Orleans in 2002 after enjoying partying there during carnival season. A former roommate said of Addie, she was a survivalist, a hustler, her attitude was, what can I do to make my rent this month? And like many in New Orleans, she waitressed, bartended, worked as a maid, a lot of service jobs. Unfortunately, when she drank too much, she tended to lash out at those around her, including incidents where she called close gay male friends the F word when inebriated. Her volatility was made more concerning by the company she kept, like cocaine dealers and sleazy tourists and rough, abusive boyfriends. One man beat her so badly after she caught him masturbating to gay porn that she was left with a broken shoulder. So Addie herself was becoming in bar fights or involved in bar fights and doing drugs like cocaine. And some friends were alienating themselves from Addie, but others, as Brown writes, quote, understood that friendship with Addie could be wonderful and strange. You just had to get out of her way when she went into one of her spells. These spells were likely untreated bipolar disorder. Um, I'm not sure if she knew that she had it. I think she did tell one of her friends that she couldn't afford the lithium to treat her mental illness. But um, this untreated bipolar disorder would throw her into both dark moods and euphoric mania with wild abandon. And a lot of times for bipolar people, it's the manic periods that are really damaging. Like you're not feeling like shit as much, but you 
destroy your life in those periods sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she also confided in a romantic partner that she had been sexually abused as a child with such extreme trauma that she had been hospitalized when she was 13. So she had a rough life. And uh, Addie was 29 when she met Zach Bowen at the Hogs Bar in 2005. She was the next bartender on after Zach's graveyard shift and was annoyed at the other female bartenders who all fawned over him. This annoyance kind of transferred over to him in sort of like a playground rivalry where she would sort of tease him, um, saying he was an oversized frat boy type and all that. He was instantly attracted to her. He saw her as a idealization of his idea of French Quarter Bohemia. She was very eccentric. She was very New Orleans. He obviously loved that party scene. It's what he kind of fell into in the first place. And so did she. Zach began to hang out at the Hogs long after his shift ended, trying to get to know Addie better. Initially, she was reluctant, but as the summer went on, they became closer and she revealed more and more of her true self to him. By August of 2005, she was introducing Zach as her new boyfriend, and the pair certainly turned heads with their eccentric vibes and enormous height difference of almost two feet. Oh, yeah, it's like uh, that Klitschko guy and Hayden Panettiere. Yeah, she was about five foot, and he was 6'10", so, you know, just, <laughs> just a crazy difference. It's like a Rottweiler dating a Chihuahua. Uh-huh. By the end of August, a storm was brewing, and maybe in more ways than one. On the afternoon of August 27th, 2005, New Orleans Mayor C. Ray Najin, Nagin? No idea. I should have looked that up. Uh, well, he urged the city's citizens to evacuate due to a powerful hurricane being predicted to directly hit NOLA. The evacuation was not mandatory at this point, though maybe it should have been, but uh, many residents fled the city in panic. Lana phoned Zach and begged him to come to where she and the kids were living to safely ride out the storm and all be together, but he refused. I'm going to stay here with Addie, he said. Even when Lana was like, fine, bring her too, uh, he wouldn't budge. And she was very furious that he wouldn't want to come there and, you know, maybe... Hang out with his kids. Well, not even hang out, but he might have to protect them or provide for them. You would They didn't know what was going to happen. The next day, the hurricane, Katrina, was upgraded to a Category 4, and then soon after, a Category 5. This is the highest designation on the hurricane wind scale, where catastrophic damage is ex estimated to occur. And at this point, mandatory evacuation was ordered. Now, what happened next and during the whole of Hurricane Katrina might deserve an episode all its own. Um, they were even going to make a season of American Crime Story about it. That's how bad things got. Yeah, but if you think this story, this one microcosm this of is that a, is yeah. depressing. The whole thing is horror. Many of us listening... Um, or many of you listening who are millennials or younger, like we are, or were, um, we were all kids at the time. We might not realize just how bad it got. We might not have seen the worst of it, but catastrophic is the right word for Hurricane Katrina. Um, I won't detail it all now, other than in this small way to frame this specific story, but here's kind of the context. 
After the mandatory evacuation, hundreds of thousands of cars poured out of metropolitan New Orleans to flee the storm. Many poor residents, however, stayed behind, deterred by lack of transport or funds. A lot of people just didn't have anywhere to go, um, didn't have any way to get there. And if you don't have a car and you don't have money for a hotel... What do you do? Yeah. So these are the invisible victims of these kinds of natural disasters. But no one realized just how bad things were going to get. And Zach and Addie were among several in their group of friends that decided to hunker down and ride the storm out in the French Quarter. It was kind of a point of pride. We're French Quarter people. We're going to stay here. and Like at the bar? Like they're going to the Winchester from Shaun of the Dead? <laughs> well, first, uh, Zach and Addie holed up in her apartment with a large supply of liquor, beer, and ice from Hogg's Bar. At approximately 6 a.m. on Monday, August 29th, Katrina made landfall, clocking 145-mile-an-hour winds. It was stuff that ripped roofs off of buildings. Two hours later, Mayor Nagin uh, reported that water had begun to flow over the levee, which is an overflow embankment, in the black working-class area of the Lower Ninth Ward neighborhood. Then other levees began to breach, sending several feet of water flooding into the streets. University of California professor of civil engineering, Raymond Seed, called it one of the most costly failures of engineered systems in history, rivaled only by the Chernobyl meltdown. So that's how disastrous these levee failures were. Rivaled. Mm-hmm. The, the only one worse involves nuclear power oh but that's why i said he he didn't say worse he said the only one that Mm -hmm. rivals it so it's like it's similar yeah however the new orleans neighborhoods built on higher ground probably initially for richer people like the french quarter were not affected mass power and communications outages cut off different neighborhoods from other areas leaving those in them trapped or completely ignorant to what was happening to others Law enforcement and government officials had completely abandoned the area during the evacuation. And um, those in the French Quarter couldn't see the full extent of the damage to the city as a whole. They could see visible destruction, um, but it was manageable. It was uprooted trees, roof damage, down lines, that sort of thing. They couldn't see the horrors of the Ninth Ward, which had bodies flowing, floating in the streets, gutted homes. I mean, it was horrific. That's the only word for it. So instead of evacuating even after the worst of the winds, when many others who stayed during the storm did because they ran out of food and water, Zach and Addie stayed at their French Quarter apartment. They embraced the survivalist life. They made campfires, cleaned trash and tree limbs that littered the streets, downed cocktails in the evenings, and even hosted impromptu dinner gatherings for the other stay-behinds. They would warm canned food over the fire, listen to music on a battery-powered boombox, and even make love right in the middle of the street in the French Quarter during the sleepy early morning hours. Listen, this is a horrible, it's one of the most horrible things that's happened in a modern American city. Um, These folks sound like in these hours, they're having a good time. Well, you're right, Sean. What was a hell for many others became for Zach and Addie a kind of bizarre paradise they were allowed to be themselves without the constraints of society family expectations finances it was a whole new world and they were also falling in love so this whole combination became sort of magical for them in a very weird way and they also didn't know how bad it was 
outside of that area, or maybe maybe not at this point. So it was kind of this weird, idyllic community that they had. As one of their compatriots noted, post-hurricane survival life, quote, was hard work, but they enjoyed the lifestyle of not having to go to work. It was right up their alley. This sort of eccentrically romantic scene became ripe fodder for the reporters now descending on the area to document the destruction. Local, state, and federal government assistance to New Orleans was criminally low in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, and with no law enforcement in sight, looters began to roam the streets. The French Quarter holdouts banded together against these outside influences. The Associated Press wrote of them in September, describing how they were proud of their ability to overcome the lack of electricity and hot water, and of each other for representing the best of the city. And they thought they were doing a public service. They were cleaning the streets. They were, you know, like that was their job during the day. They would do that all day, is clean up the destruction. Zach told a reporter from the Mobile Register, It's actually been kind of nice, and I'm getting healthier, eating right, and toning up. Yeah, I was thinking about joining back up with the military. (laughs) The story characterized Zach and Addie as inventive, cheery DIYers. They even made it onto the front page of the New York Times in an article headlined, Holdouts on Dry Ground Say, Why Leave Now? Quote, Some holdouts seem intent on keeping alive the distinct and wild spirit of this city. In the French Quarter, Addie Hall and Zachary Bowen found an unusual way to make sure that police officers regularly patrolled their house. Ms. Hall, 28, a bartender, flashed her breasts at the police vehicles that passed by, ensuring a regular flow of traffic. (laughs) That is very New Orleans. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't all campfires and sunshine. And titties. And titties. They often biked by a corpse stuffed into a shopping cart when they ventured out of the quarter. And Addie was almost raped during one looting session at a store. The military began to arrive in the city, the sight of which triggered Zach's PTSD. It's a common thing for um, PTSD survivors. If they see the military in a war zone-like area, it's, it's very bad mentally. So they're fighting off looters from other parts of the city, or from outside the city, but they're also looting the stuff that's left in stores because it's the only way to it's eat, It's the right? only way to eat, yeah. Fully zombie, like... Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's, it's post-apocalyptic. Post-apocalyptic wasteland, yeah. Yeah, many people in the documentaries, they would... Apocalyptic, apocalyptic. That's what they described it as. It's like uh, The Last of Us, and you're just taping together yeah. bricks and uh, uh, talcum powder. Pretty much. On September 6th, Mayor Nagan signed a promulgation of emergency order directing the New Orleans Police, Fire Department, and the U.S. military to compel the evacuation of all persons from the city of New Orleans, regardless of whether such holdouts are on private property or do not desire to leave. Zach and Addie, along with many of their friends, openly defied these orders. And then the evacuees began to return a few days later. And many of the holdouts uh, began to view these encroachers with disdain. Residents were officially allowed to return on September 19th. And one acquaintance stated, 
They hated it when people started coming back. They hated everybody from the Katrina sightseers to the people who hadn't survived the hurricane there and were making their way home. They liked the lifestyle we had during the hurricane. They liked camping out. They liked not having to work. They liked not having the responsibility of paying bills. They didn't like the change back to normalcy. They were desperately trying to hold on to their utopia by the end of the month. Uh, Zach moved in with Addie, and they adopted several stray kittens. The pair hosted a barbecue in the courtyard of the apartment, regaling friends with the story of how they'd rode out Katrina together. Addie proclaimed, I wish this love for every human being on the planet. But by the end of October, more of the normalcy was creeping in, tainting their happiness. They returned to their jobs, and Lana demanded that Zach resume his parental responsibilities, furious that he had abandoned her and their children to stay with Addie. Parental responsibilities meaning child support. Well, just giving a shit about your children. Because he hadn't even returned any messages she'd left on his cell phone during and after the storm. She thought he was dead for about a month. Wow. Mm-hmm. And he was just banging in the middle of a bourbon street. Yeah. At one point, he did call his mom with some reporter's phone, but Lana didn't know he was alive for a month after Katrina. Zach and Lana had a volatile confrontation where she stated that she was done with him and demanded Zach start paying child support, which he hadn't done up to this point. Addie was initially receptive to the kids, you know, visiting their home. That would be a condition. Um, but eventually she withdrew, leaving the apartment when Jackson and Lily would come over. Soon she began to push Zach to get a hotel room for the kids' weekend visits. He was, she didn't want them around at all. What? Uh, I don't know. It's, in my opinion, not cool. No. A mutual friend said, quote, everything changed when real life started coming back in. They were living in a bubble. She wanted him to be a creation only for her. It was the same with him. He fell in love with the goddess of the French Quarter. But that was not reality, and reality started forcing its way in. Addie soon became a favorite bartender at the Spotted Cat Jazz Club, while Zach took a job delivering groceries. Because his work was so rooted in socializing and traveling the neighborhood, all the locals came to know Zach. And between both of them, they were making enough in tips during the tourist season that they began to go on marathon drinking and drug sprees by spring of, tw- of 2006. The inebriation led to terrible fights between the two, including one violent enough to leave Addie bruised, though both couldn't remember what had happened. They were both blacked out. After this, Zach decided to take a break from her and New Orleans and spent a few weeks in Portland, Oregon. Stay! (sighs) Stay! Maybe it'd be great to dry out from both the hurricane water and the, you know, beer Mm. and hurricanes. Yeah. Uh, Well, both Zach and Addie were miserable during the separation. A friend bought Zach a plane ticket back to New Orleans, saying, I wanted them to work it out and be together because they were so much in love. And after having lost a relationship myself after Katrina, I wanted to see something work out for someone else. So he came back, and they had a blissful reunion upon his return to the city. For how long? Well, it wouldn't last. They soon fell back into their routine of partying, and then Addie would fall into one of her spells and verbally abuse Zach. Um, They might have a physical fight, and then friends would intervene. 
That summer, their fighting devolved into constant breaking up and getting back together over and over and over again. In mid-August, one particularly heated fight propelled Addie to leave the apartment with her handgun and eventually get into an argument with a man in the French Quarter. Addie trained her gun on the man who called the cops. She fled back to the apartment, but was soon arrested by police for aggravated assault with a firearm, as well as possession of marijuana and paraphernalia. Zach refused to bail his girlfriend out, but she was assisted by friends, and the couple got back together. This also didn't last long. In late September, neighbors called police on the pair after a violent screaming match at the apartment, resulting in Zach being arrested for possession. As their fights increased... Drug possession? Uh, yes, this was marijuana, but they started to depend on other drugs, including cocaine. As Addie's former boss characterized it on Final Witness, theirs became a graveyard love. And that is one where it's basically, if I can't have you, no one else will. One of us will end up in the grave and the other in the penitentiary. So they were not... Um Hanging out in St. Louis, number one. It wasn't that kind of graveyard. No, no, that's that's our love. Zach also began to party at a gay leather bar called The Phoenix. He'd bartended at a gay bar before, but at The Phoenix, he began to do much more. Okay, so Addie only dates guys who are actually gay. Some of her friends said that she had homophobic tendencies. She had issues. Um, She would get close to gay men. As a friend, and then she would have one of her spells and... Call them the F-word. Call them the F-word, so... Right, but one of her earlier relationships ended when she walked in on the guy masturbating to gay porn. Yes. And uh, now she's losing this boyfriend to gay clubs. Yeah. Well, he did begin to secretly date another man, and he started to seriously contemplate that he was bisexual. Uh, But in the post-Katrina French Quarter, his relationship didn't stay secret from Addie for long. And angry and heartbroken over his infidelity, she began to talk to him with homophobic comments. The couple... This is Manic Addie's bread and butter. This is her her closer. Yes. The couple then did maybe the third-ish worst thing to do in attempting to rescue a failing relationship right after having a kid and getting married. Oh, I was going to say, did they get pregnant? Now, they officially moved in together into a, a new apartment on North Rampart Street. Mm-hmm. Same same outline. Yeah. Different color. Mm-hmm. On October 4th, 2006, uh, right after they decided to rent this apartment, Addie showed up unexpectedly to landlord Leo Watermeyer's office demanding a six-month lease in her name only, which he eventually agreed to. How long after signing? Um, It was like the day after they had come in, then she wanted the lease in her name only. And after she left, minutes later, Zach called Leo, and he said, oh man, I'm screwed. She's kicking me out and the lease is in her name. And Leo's like, I don't, I don't know what your guys' deal is. Uh, he, you know, went over to the apartment and tried to confront the couple, but Addie screamed at Leo that she'd found out Zach had been cheating on her with another man. Zach himself was furious as he had fronted much, much of the money for the rent and was now stuck without a place to have his children visit for the weekend. Leo basically fled at this point, and he was like, I'm leaving you guys to your argument. This is not, none of this is my problem. Make sure I get the rent. Pretty much. 
and argue they did for hours upon hours well into the night. As Ethan Brown wrote in Shake the Devil Off, quote, Zach grew increasingly despondent about not just his poisonous relationship with Addie, but his entire life, which seemed to him now a long accumulation of shames and failures. Dropping out of high school for no good reason, decamping to New Orleans to party with his dad, having kids at far too young an age, enduring the loss of friends in Iraq, the general discharge that jeopardized his benefits and ended his military career, the dissolution of his marriage with Lana soon afterward, irresponsibly failing to care for Jackson and Lily during and after Hurricane Katrina, the return of the endless succession of low-level jobs in New Orleans, the place he believed that he'd left behind when he enlisted in the military. Finally, because Addie had signed the lease to 826 North Rampart in her name, Zach, in his despair, was confronted by the prospect of homelessness. He couldn't go back to Lana and live with her, and the notion of carting his belongings to the run-down empress and then making up an excuse to Lana as to why he couldn't take the kids again embarrassed him. As midnight neared, Zach and Addie's fighting turned physical. About an hour later, according to Zach's extensive suicide note, Zach clasped his hands around Addie's neck and strangled her to death. This extensive suicide note was found in Addie's journal at the end of it, um, with entries from Zach beginning on the morning of October 5th, hours after he killed her. Quote, she had stolen this apartment, tried to kick me out, then would not shut the fuck up, so I very calmly strangled her. It was very quick. He went into some more horrifying detail, which I suggest our more sensitive listeners skip a few minutes ahead for. Quote, after sexually defiling the body a few times, I was posed with the question of how to dispose of the corpse. Now, I will say police told the ABC News soon after the murder that, quote, there's no indication of necrophilia. We don't suspect it at all. So maybe he lied. Uh, the why you why you'd say that. I don't know. It, it's so out of keeping with everything else that I've heard so far. It seemed like he, he threw himself off a roof, and it seems like a very regretful, yeah. you know, why would you go for shock value here? Yeah. Zach would pass out on the bed next to the body in a drunken stupor, waking again at about 6 a.m. the next day. And then he went to work. At work, he told a mutual friend that him and Addie had split, and she had taken some of his money and went back home to North Carolina. The friend later said that he'd contemplated if Zach had murdered Addie, but dismissed the idea because it was not something you can even comprehend a friend doing. Plus, bailing for a spontaneous trip out of state seemed like something Addie would do, so it was believable enough. After work that evening, Zach arrived back at the apartment and began to methodically clean the crime scene and dismember Addie's body. What day is it at this point? This is the day after he killed her which is the fifth i uh, believe or the fifth or the sixth oh no yeah fifth or the sixth so he's gonna have this corpse around for mm -hmm. a while mm -hmm. zach wrote i came home moved the body to the tub got a saw and hacked off her feet hands and head put her head in the oven after giving it an awful haircut put her hands and feet in the water on the range. So there it is. It okay, so they were boiled. Why cut her hair? Why do any of this? Does he explain why he's doing all of this? It's unclear, but it seems like this is how he's trying to dispose of the body. Just cook it down. 
That's not, I mean, you know, forgive there, me. There is a killer. I forget. I think he was uh, British or in Britain um, who would kind of cook down the bodies, flush uh, the, you know, pieces down the toilet and then like um, powder basically the bones. And that's how they, that he would dispose of it. So maybe it's something like that. So he's hoping to boil the flesh off this, the, the skull and hands and then just smash up the bones later? I assume so. I don't think he's thinking very clearly, but I think that's his strategy. Let's see if it works out for him, Cotton. Mm-hmm. He worked on the body for hours until he became so exhausted that he needed to sleep. He planned to spend the weekend disposing of the body, but wrote, due to laziness, spent most of that time coked up in various bars with different girls. He failed to take the kids for the weekend, so this is the weekend after the murder. Uh, obviously, he's not taking the kids, but managed to convince Lana to bring them by the store where he worked to see him. Lana observed that he was in a happy, generous mood, telling the kids to run inside and get all the Cokes and candy you want. He promised them he'd take them next weekend and bid them goodbye. It was like, little... No, not that bag that says Coke. That's Daddy's <laughs> special, uh, special murder powder. I mean, walking powder. Yeah. Well, this was the last time that they'd all see each other. That night, Zach continued his work. Sunday night, I sawed off the rest of the legs and arms and put them in roasting pans, stuck them in the oven, and passed out. I came to seven hours later with an awful smell emanating from the kitchen. I turned off the oven and went to work Monday. This would be the last day I'd work. Zach delivered groceries on his shift that day as the dismembered body of Addie Hall laid strewn throughout the apartment. When he returned back, the sight of Addie's rotting body parts finally overcame him with horror. I scared myself not by the action of strangling the woman I've loved for one and a half years, but by my entire lack of remorse. So I decided to quit my job and spend the 1500 in cash I had being happy and then kill myself. He spent the next evening at the Hustler Club on Bourbon Street, charming one stripper to take him home to her place for a wild sex and drugs bender lasting two days. And obviously, they couldn't go to his place. When he returned to the quarter, he went back to the strip clubs, then called Lana in a drugged-out haze when he realized it was their wedding anniversary. So this was October 10th. It's all a little hazy how the timeline goes here. I'm sure it was hazy for him. (laughs) Yeah. Their conversation was short and awkward, with Lana hanging up on Zach after he referred to her as his favorite stripper. And that would be the last time they'd speak. Um, okay. This guy's gone through some tough stuff in his uh, life, I guess. Mm-hmm. He's a real piece of shit. It's not good here, right now. He's not doing good stuff. No, no. I mean, he was. He, there were some flashes of like him being a good guy when he was in the military, mm-hmm. befriending a little uh, Iraqi child and all this stuff. But whatever happened to him there, um, there's no like, oh, it's, it's a romantic bohemian story here for me. This is just uh, two people who both should, should have been doing something different, probably. Well, the romantic bohemian story comes during Katrina, but even then it's sort of filtered through the the horror that's going on all around them that they're not really privy to. Well, and they're just happy to not have to have fucking jobs. Yeah. At that point. Yeah. So yeah, they're happy because they've never, neither of them has, has ever, except for the military, mm-hmm. been in a job that was kind of rewarding. Yeah. Uh, the or, next... or leading to anything. Right. 
The next few days, Zach went out to bars and clubs with friends, treating several people to drinks and lap dances. He took a friend's bartending shift and happily slung cocktails and chatted with bar patrons until sunrise. Yeah, he's having the three best days of his life because nothing else matters anymore. He knows Mm -hmm. he's going to die and he knows that he doesn't need any more money. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, that night, he marked his body with 28 cigarette burns, representing the 28 years of his life. He wrote in Addie's journal, spray-painted messages on the walls, and eventually, on October 17th, rode the elevator to the top of the Omni Royal Hotel and La Riviera Rooftop Bar, spent the afternoon having drinks by the pool, and then leapt from the roof to his death below at 8.30 p.m. Yeah, um... I wanted this to be more sympathetic story for this guy when, when we heard about the suicide note and the um, the messages painted on his walls. By the way, remind me what was painted on the walls. Um, you know, I'm a failure. I love her. Please make the pain stop. Didn't say call my wife. Call my wife. Yeah. Yeah, fuck this guy. Well, Lana was soon notified about Zach's suicide as well as the murder. Quote, once I found out about the Omni Royal, I knew everything I needed to know, she said. We used to take the kids swimming there. I felt like Zach made a personal decision to hurt me and the kids. The news, of course, uh, got a hold of the story and ran with it. And he did, by the way. That is why he did that. He was a bad person. (laughs) Um, Boyfriend cut up corpse, cooked it, screamed the headline of the Times Picayune. Gal pal gumbo announced the New York Post with their typical tact. Always classy. Mm Mm-hmm. Many began to call Zach the Butcher of Bourbon Street, which he wasn't on Bourbon Street, but close enough. A New Orleans therapist urged Lana to tell Jackson and Lily all of the details of the murder-suicide. I don't know why any therapist would say to do this, but she did. And this led Jackson to become withdrawn and Lily to start making crayon drawings of Zach jumping off the roof of the Omni Royal. Yeah, that tracks. Mm-hmm. The little girl also developed severe gastrointestinal symptoms, triggering a doc- doctor to speculate it was a psychological response to her belief that her father had eaten Addie. Many news outlets report that Zach had partaken in cannibalism after cooking Addie's remains, but from what I can gather, there is no proof that he ever did or ever intended to. It seemed that the cooking was just his screwed-up mind suggestion for disposing of her remains and not, you know, anything Dahmer-esque. Although when when it's late and you're drunk, you know how hungry you can get. Sean. Zach's body was cremated, with the Bowens opting for no funeral in order to avoid media coverage. Addie's body, really sadly, sat unclaimed at the Orleans Parish Coroner's Office for months until finally taken by family members in the late winter. Late in 2006, the Associated Press wrote, quote, There is no suggestion the slaying had anything to do with voodoo, but some guides are already dropping the story into the yarns they spin as they take visitors on tours of the quarter, a place of gothic spires, curlicued wrought iron balconies, and shop windows cluttered with voodoo candles and bottles of exotic potions. There was definitely a voodoo patina on this story when we heard it on Absolutely. the ghost and uh, yeah, when we were on our New Orleans Ghost and History Tour back in t- 2019, I think, 
Uh, We made a stop at 826 North Rampart and heard the story of Zachary Bowen and Addie Hall. Zach and Addie's case has become another New Orleans ghost story. It's been spotlighted in ghost shows like Paranormal Lockdown and BuzzFeed Unsolved Supernatural. These shows, including our beloved BuzzFeed Ghost Boys, make a link between the voodoo shop on the first floor and the crime itself. The voodoo shop. The ghost boys do this? Uh, I think they mention it. I expect better from the ghost boys. Because I think they investigated both floors. So take that as you will. Um, The voodoo shop is now Bloody Mary's New Orleans Haunted Museum. And the building is sometimes called the Rampart Street Murder House or the Zack and Addie Murder House. And apparently you might even be able to go upstairs and see Zack and Addie's apartment if you're passing by, complete with the tub where Addie was dismembered and the stove and fridge that stored her body. Again, classy. Mm. When television isn't covering the haunting angle, they're covering the crime itself. Along with Final Witness, the case has been shown on true crime docuseries such as Handsome Devils. Each show handles the case with differing amounts of empathy. As you can probably tell by the title Handsome Devils, that one took a more negative angle on Zach. (laughs) Uh, Despite the involvement of interviewees like his mother, Lori, and ex-wife, Lana. Lori especially can be found online in places like Zach's digital obituary, talking about how much she loved him and how sweet he had been. She uploaded pictures of him to Pinterest from his childhood. I saw her in a couple different places. Um, Finding her words about her son really drove home to me that this is a case that is still extraordinarily painful to all those involved who loved both of these people and can't just flip to hating Zach for what he did. Well, of course. And they were people and people are flawed and people generally have people who love them and for a reason, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think... I just don't think this is a, oh, it's so sad that this spun out of control or, oh, it's so sad that the military did him so dirty and he is... Well, I think there is an element of that. Yeah, there is. But then you don't have to... All of his... A, the murder, and B, all of his conduct after the murder um, is the least sympathetic thing I've ever... It really puts a bad taste in my mouth. (sighs) Well, as a final strange postscript to this story, one one of the interviewees on Final Witness... And in the documentary, Zach and Addie, which um, is not online, so I wasn't able to see it. Uh, her name is Margaret Sanchez. She was a close friend of Addie's especially, but I think both of them. She was arrested in 2014 for the murder of dancer Jaron Lockhart with her boyfriend, Terry Speaks. Weirdly, Lockhart had been stabbed and dismembered by the couple on June 6th, 2012, just a month before the final witness episode on Zach and Addie that Sanchez was interviewed for aired. Sanchez pled guilty in 2016, receiving 40 years in prison for manslaughter. Manslaughter? Yeah, well, I think it was originally second-degree murder, and then she uh, took a plea. After dismembering someone in a tub? Yep. And so she's linked to two dismemberment cases uh, in a weird twist. So, Sean, what are your thoughts on this case? Do you think Zach and Addie were failed by the systems around them, like with the military and government? Do you think Zach was a monster or a troubled 
ex-vet tormented by PTSD who regretted his actions. Why not both? Um, the, the institutions yeah. around you can fail, and that doesn't give you license to murder your girlfriend. No. I uh, think she, can be an, she can be an asshole, too. And yeah. she sounds like a pretty bad lover and potentially a bad person you know, if you met her in real life. But that doesn't mean you get to m- murder her. You can't yeah. choke the life out of her. And then, and then he gets to spend two weeks um, partying it up in New Orleans and l- looking generous and like a good guy because he's spending all his money on other people's drinks. Um, and, and having all of his friends, you well, know. Well, it's not a, he gets to. I mean, he, he planned it because he knew he was going to kill himself at the end. Yeah, but all he wanted to do was waste his whole life partying with a bunch of jerks. And he got to spend the rest of his life doing that. Um, and it was all on the back of murdering this poor woman. I mean, I'm definitely conflicted with this one. It's clear to me that he's very severely mentally ill um, throughout the entire post-war era. So was Jeffrey Dahmer. No, but, I know. But we don't not say he's a monster. No, I know that, but... It doesn't seem like something he would have done without the PTSD affecting him. It doesn't give him an excuse. No one has an excuse for killing someone else. Um, but just that, that list at the end that Ethan Brown makes when you know he's, he's talking about what he was thinking about to um, when, when he was killing Addie and then deciding to kill himself. You know, it's just such a string of failures, just such a, a hard and miserable life. Um, now, and this is, I'm not victim blaming here, but a lot of those things were, came out of decisions he made. Yeah. But, uh, you know, decisions you make when you're 17, they don't always affect the rest of your life. Some of them do. When they're people, <laughs> you yes. know, when they're people you've created. Well, they again, do. he didn't want them, but again, he went back and forth on that, I think. So I don't know. I have some empathy for him and her. They both had very severe mental illness, but both did very terrible things. And he did, obviously, the worst that you can do. I think they they sound, just and I don't know them personally, and I know there's people out there who uh, knew them and and still miss and love them. And so I say this, you know, uh, not to just crap on them or anything, but they sound like two incredibly selfish people who just shouldn't have been in the same place. Yeah. Well, obviously, yeah, that's why things ended the way they did. So that's the story of uh, Zach and Addie. They're called the, sometimes the Katrina murder because it's so intertwined with Hurricane Katrina. Um, yeah, it's a sad story. I'm going to come out here with a strong stance. Graveyard love, not love. Not like this. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland news producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast killer podcasts and slow burn media production 
Subscribe today, wherever you get your favorite shows. It's true crime time. Not to wallow in the darkness too much this week, but I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the University of Idaho student killings that have been all over the news the last few days. On November 13th, four University of Idaho students in Moscow, Idaho, Ethan Shapin, Kaylee Gonzalez, Zana Kernoldal, and Madison Mogan were found dead in a home near the university's campus. Police were responding to a call about an unconscious person, but what they found was a bloodbath. All four students, aged 20 and 21, had been stabbed to death so brutally that it's been rumored there was blood seeping out of the foundation to the exterior of the house. Oh my god, that's like, um, that's something out of Evil Dead. Yeah, that's something that I heard on TikTok, so I have to imagine they were probably exaggerating. Um, It just seems like too much. The Evil Dead comparison is because that's too much blood. Yeah. Gonzalez, Kernodal, and Mogan all lived in the home, and Shapin was a frequent visitor as he was dating Zana. So Chapin and Kernodal had attended a party at Sigma Chi Fraternity House until about 9 p.m. the night before. Goncalves and Mogan were at a local sports bar until 1.30 a.m. and seen ordering from a nearby food truck on the truck's live Twitch stream, which is apparently something they had. Mm-hmm. Um, they did not appear to be in distress or in danger in any way in the video. And all four victims were back at the house by 1.45 a.m. on Sunday. The next we know, the 911 call was placed around noon. Police have said that the four victims were likely sleeping at the time of the attack and that some of them had defensive wounds. Now, crazily enough, two other roommates were in the house and they were uninjured, as well as a pet dog. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, were, were they sleeping... Just on a different floor, or? I don't know. There was, the murders happened on the second and third floor of the home. I don't know the setup. Um, They haven't released much information about these other roommates, so I'm not sure. Police said multiple calls were made to the cell phone of a victim's ex-boyfriend, ending at 2.52 a.m. That was from one of the victim's phones. The timing of those calls places the murders, if the victim made those calls, sometime after 3 a.m., Their surviving roommates had even called friends over to the home to hang out, believing the dead body of one of their roommates to just be unconscious from partying. Uh, It's pretty grim. Under the sheet and Ferris Bueller style. Peeked their head into the room. I don't know. Moscow police initially told the public that the attack was targeted with no further threat to the public. But by day four, police chief Jason Fry adjusted that statement. We cannot say that there is no threat to the community. So everyone's freaking out, of course. We cannot say that there is no threat. Mm -hmm. That double negative is uh, uncomfortable. Yes. No suspects have been named, but tips have come in suggesting that Kaylee Gonzalez had a stalker. They have not been able to identify who that could have been as of now. So we'll be sure to keep all of you updated on this bizarre and tragic case as it progresses 
And our thoughts are with the family and friends of Ethan, Kaylee, Madison, and Sana. Yeah, geez, that's uh, sad and terrifying. Yeah, yeah, it is. Happy Thanksgiving. Jeez. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary. And check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash scary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number, 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also now on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We sure will. And special thanks to our beloved top-tier patrons, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakudis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Ira, Kate Pope, and our newest patron, Haley. Welcome to the Scary Squad, Haley. We are glad to have you. Welcome, and see you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe, music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.